Welcome to FinTech at Hearts. Today, I'm joined by Mark Fiorentino, FinTech investor and principal at Index Ventures. Index is a global multi-stage VC firm headquartered in London and San Francisco and has invested in successful fintechs such as Robinhood, TransferWise, Plaid and Revolut. Prior to Index and after graduating from UC Berkeley, Mark spent three years at Stripe. Mark, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast, especially given how close to home it is with the Cal Connection. So touching on the Cal Connection, it'd be great to hear more about your background growing up and how you ended up at Index focusing on fintech. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's interesting because the way I view how I got into fintech in the first place, there's sort of a, there's a very personal angle and there's also the business angle with, with, with Stripe. So I assuming we're kind of going to get to the Stripe later in the podcast, I'm going to start with the personal side. So, you know, I grew up in, in Southern California um, and I had divorced parents from a very young age. So it's interesting is like, you see a lot of interesting financial kind of hardships and, and complexities that come with that. So for example, like going to the the doctor with, you know, your dad versus your mom and having to like the, the inability to share something like a joint account where they wanted to split the payment, something as simple as paying like a, a $50 doctor bill or a $200 doctor bill was difficult. So, I mean, things like even Venmo didn't exist at the time, obviously, but you know, tracking like no, no concept of a ledger for, for who's spending what did there be, you know, arguments and tips around like, oh, you, know, you know, I paid last time, you pay this time, but how do we track that? Or, and, and sending wire transfers to each other, very costly and, and time consuming. So, you know, it was exposed to some kind of weird consumer facing financial complexities from an early age. And then, you know, I think as you grow up that, that continues, right? So going to Cal student debt, and this is a problem that a ton of people at this point in time have faced. And the way I view student debt and a lot of the investments I look at, it's kind of interesting, right? Because you know, problem A is just optimizing what is out there for me as a student and ideally not even debt, you know, what grants can I get? What sort of like non-interest bearing loans can I take on? And it's overwhelming as a 15, 16, 17 year old trying to figure that out. And at the time there was no sort of like common app for student debt in a way. So, you know, there's a lot of money that's left on the table every year from students just not sort of applying to grants or loans that they would actually be great candidates for. Um, and then, you know, fast forward for me, I think, you know, upon, you know, I, this was actually right after graduating undergrad at Cal and, and, you know, uh, starting my first job, which was actually, a, I was an investment banker at, at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years, um, in San Francisco. And what was interesting is that, you know, for me, it was this weird dichotomy of, okay, I'm graduating from UC Berkeley, a, a good, you know, collegiate institution, um, but, you know, given all the work study jobs I worked, I had exhausted a lot of the money that I had helping, you know, my dad at the time pay for rent and like other things were, and, and lo and behold, I had now overextended myself. And I had probably about three or four months before I was actually starting at Goldman. And what's weird is like thinking about, you know, the dichotomy of I'm starting in this, this, like, you know, what I felt like a prestigious job at the time that would pay well, but I didn't know how to sort of bridge the four months of graduation to starting at Goldman. And what was tough about that is, you know, I think the epitome of like the broken financial ecosystem for me was literally going down to this like payday loan lender and like, you know, some sketchy part of San Pablo for all of the, the Cal people that know where that is. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I walked in and I'm like, it's insane to me that, you know, I'm sitting here with this offer letter for, for, you know, X amount of money per year. And I can't get anyone to underwrite me who basically had no credit score at the time to 
you know, like this is my only option to get, you know, take out this like bridge loan with like a 40% interest rate. And that kind of summed up in a nutshell how broken the consumer financial ecosystem was. And that's where I think it got my brain sort of ticking. Like this needs to be fixed. There's got to be better ways to, you know, FICO score is not the way of the future for, for underwriting, you know, young, early to mid 20 year olds. And there, there must be more future looking indicators that make a lot more sense. Like, an offer letter or like, you know, an income stream and things like that. So I'd say that was the the kind of personal anecdote and exposure to fintech. And then now kind of bridging this all back to, to you know, how did I end up at Index in the first place? So, um, you know, while I was at Goldman, actually, one of my colleagues, Dino, who is uh, now at Index with me, he actually called me up, you know, maybe about three and a half years into Stripe and and basically said, hey, we, we have an opening here on the fintech side. Do you have any interest in, you know, coming back to the, the, the investing side of the world um, where I had been actually pre-Stripe at a private equity firm? So I, I thought about it for a while and, and there was always a part of me that that I think will miss the operating side. But, uh, you know, I think that the pace at which venture operated, the, uh, the fact that, you know, after three and a half years at Stripe, you kind of have seen a lot on the the fintech side and and maybe areas you'd like to invest in so that all you know that all kind of taking all that together forced me to take this plunge back into the uh the investing side and that was about a, a year and a half ago at this point and i haven't looked back since you mentioned your personal experience with financial hardships and it's something you hear from founders that they have a very unique perspective on a certain problem because they've gone through it and that's why they decide to work on a certain problem and i think that deep insight into why something is broken and what are the potential solutions and why the current system is bad provides them with a really great insight. And I assume you would kind of agree that it's the same for you as an investor. Completely. And, and it's funny because, you know, without going too far down this, this tangent, I think a lot of it, a lot of people in the investing world are blessed with probably, you know, better than average upbringings to some degree. So I think a fallacy that I see a lot on the investing side is, I will anchor on my own personal experience as an investor growing up to equate this to the the broader subset of you know like the 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 demographics in the U.S. or or even globally. And I think that's where it sounds simple, but at the same time, I do see it happen quite often. And and I think we have to push ourselves to say, well, you know, maybe fifty percent of the you know folks in the U.S. have experienced some form of like a divorce per se. So like there is a different demographic you just don't see as often you know, coming from the, the kind of backgrounds that I think the, the, I'd say the average investor has. So, so it is, I think it's just something we need to constantly remind ourselves of when we're assessing, especially a lot of these kind of more consumer facing fintech businesses. Definitely. And there's, there's times when I find like a, a fintech product that I f- find awesome and my friends also really like, and you think well, this is going to be huge, but when you take yourself out of the the situation and consider most of your friends are also like you, but not like everyone else in the country. You can't necessarily extrapolate that to being like a, a really big success. Totally, totally. I mean, it, you know, it works the opposite way too. And it's interesting you say that because it's, uh, you know, you often see some sort of what I'll call like a fintech nerd product where of course a lot of folks within Silicon Valley and and you know, the investing world will find some very niche product, uh, uh, you know, cool, interesting, and it serves some sort of pain point for them. But when you kind of extrapolate that out to the the broader user base in the US or, or globally, it's, uh, you know, it becomes a harder sort of sell point because there's a lot of user education necessary or that pain point doesn't resonate with your average consumer. So so it almost works in both ways to some degree. So that, I think that's, uh, it's interesting you say that. It'd be great to hear more about your, your time at Stripe, what things you worked on and how that shapes your lens or the value that you bring as an investor as well. Yeah, totally. So, you know, 
it's interesting because you know there's always this constant debate of you know do you need operating experience to be a good venture investor and honestly i think the answer to me is is squarely no but at the same time it does dictate style and how you view the world so so i think you have to cater to your your background and experiences and you know i i think for me i the, the way i view fit the fintech landscape and and what i find like an interesting idea or entrepreneurs that i get along with very much dictated by my time at Stripe. So I just don't think I would personally have been the, the same type of investor on the venture side without the, the you know, nearly four years at Stripe. And I think for me, it's, it's at least 50% of the puzzle. So like the way I view sort of uh, theses maybe I'm interested in, I'd say, you know, 50 to 70% of them are just based on kind of payments, banking infrastructure and seeing the, the, the guts of how things worked at Stripe, you know, what Stripe served well, what they didn't and what other areas, you know, might need sort of reassessment in the banking ecosystem. And, and then the, the second bucket, uh, you know, I jokingly, semi-jokingly, I should say, call this fintech derivatives. In some cases, you know, these, these sort of SaaS tools that I'm referring to, uh, you know, the, the dotted line to, to, to fintech makes is an easier thing to draw. Other cases, maybe it's a little bit more of a stretch. But in reality, what it really is, is, you know, when I, when I was at Stripe, I probably worked across sales ops, enterprise sales, customer support, risk infrastructure, and then ultimately a little bit of FP&A for the last maybe year or so. And it uh, basically any kind of B2B SaaS tool that I touched while I was there, I, I have strong opinions on. And so I'll look at a lot of those sectors as well. Um, and so you could call it like a, a sales tool or a, or a, or a FP&A software or, or customer support software even. So that, that's all of that again, dictated kind of by the, by the time I had it Stripe. In terms of Stripe as a company, how did you find the culture? People still call it a startup, but it's actually pretty huge now. Yeah, so Stripe was a unique place that I will miss working at for a lot of reasons. And what, I mean, actually what attracted me in the first place, I mean, it was it, 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 every single person that worked there, and I think there were about maybe 150 or so folks when I joined, you know, there's this just kind of vehement intellectual curiosity that attracted like people went there yeah, they, like knowing that they you know this at the at its core was a payments company and it's funny because you know you don't think of a payments company as the the sexiest business um but everyone there was bought into this mentality of you know we want to grow the gdp of the internet and and it was like we will do anything in our power to do that whether it's new products um sort of working I mean I, I like no one forced you to work long hours or on weekends but it's almost like everyone wanted to there just out of pure passion for for the place they were they were working at and and you know I think some of the things I'll miss the most were these kind of just purely organic lunch conversations where someone from you know the the engineering infrastructure team uh the AI engineering team you know customer support and you know myself from kind of like the sales ops FP&A side of the world sit down at a table and just riff on what new products you know we should be releasing um and and it was great and I remember I think I had first been bouncing ideas off like with of Stripe Capital maybe back in late 2015 off people and you know seeing that come to fruition in in sort of late you know 2018 early 2019 was was great and I'm, you know I'm not gonna pretend like I had a huge hand in that but at least it was an idea that I had at this lunch meeting and we sort of eventually kind of brought it from, from, from sort of nascent product to, to something real that users really wanted. And, and that sort of satisfaction you derive from being there in the early days and growing that, um, I will miss that. 
I think those sort of lunchtime learning sessions are becoming really popular. I know in the last few companies I've worked at, you know, different departments will come and do a presentation so that the rest of the business understands what you do and how that helps drive the overall mission of the, of the company to its goal. I think it's very important as well for a company to have a mission and that helps you attract talent. And like you say, motivates you as well, if you really align to that. Completely. So moving on to index, given the global nature of the team, how do you manage collaboration with the different geographies and how has that changed pre and post COVID? Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. It's a, it's a good question. It also is a great kind of uh, a plug to say what makes index kind of unique too. But I think it is, you know, so a little background index too, is we uh, technically in, you know, in the, in the very late nineties started in Geneva actually of all places. And then, uh, you know, a couple years in realized sort of London, was the place to be in the European tech ecosystem. So that's really where the office sort of first blossomed. And, you know, through from essentially kind of 2002 to 2011, Index was very much a European London focused firm. And after sort of making a name for itself out there, um, a couple of folks from, you know, started the San Francisco office in 2011. And, and at this point, we're about split evenly from an, uh, an investor headcount and, and you know, sort of capital allocated perspective. And it's, uh, you know, it's always been unique because I think one of the things that that helps index all entrepreneurs that, you know, cross Atlantic, it works both ways. You know, I'm a European entrepreneur. I want to go to the U.S. or vice versa, U.S. going to, to the EU. It You know, we bring this unique perspective and you you get great connections uh, and you get to work closely with, you know, investors, both in the U.S. and the EU, regardless of, of sort of like whose investment on the index team it was. And I think the the actual decision making process, honestly, hasn't changed a ton because, you know, when we bring a, a company in for a Series A or growth investment, you know, you're going to meet the entire partnership from the U.S. and the European office via Zoom. And yes, maybe you would have come into one of those offices pre-COVID, but you still have, you know, half the team to get to interact with via Zoom uh, in one of those meetings. So it's not entirely different, actually, at the end of the day. And uh, I think I think the fact that we're used to working cross-Atlantic has actually sort of helped us, if anything, in a time like this where everything now has to be Zoom-based to some degree. And do you guys invest out of one fund, both the London office and the San Francisco office? So yes, from a fund structure standpoint, we have uh, we always have a venture fund and a growth fund. Um, same investing team, which is quite unique, but two just two different funds from a capital deployment standpoint. Um, and we have a venture fund and a, and a growth fund. Ge geography is agnostic, so you know those same two funds uh, you know are allocated for both U.S. and European investments. Uh, and from a sector standpoint, you know, even though the individual investors may focus on a specific set of one to two sectors, uh, the funds themselves are sector agnostic as well. Right. That makes sense. And with a strong focus on people, how has COVID impacted that? You can't meet people face to face. And do you find it's a lot more difficult to make those decisions? And have you decided to go with more breadth of information rather than depth, given that it's hard to meet people? What sort of adjustments have you made in that regard? Completely. So it's funny you bring up the, the, I'll call it the relying on trusted friends in the ecosystem references. Um, I think, I think to what, what you just described is absolutely true that the, the, the power of a back channel from someone you trust that may know the founder you're talking to quite well. I think the, the weight of, of something like that is, is more important now more so than ever. And actually the reciprocal is true. It's like, I'm saying from the investing side, but you know, I think for the founders trying to sort of rate an investor, 
it, it, the same, the same goes that it goes both ways. So I think as an investor, you're actually hyper cognizant of you, not only who am I asking to get a reference on this founder, but also who is this founder going to ask to get a reference on me? Because I, I think it's, it's, it's fair game both ways. And it's interesting to see how, how important references are in the ecosystem at this point, uh, you know, both ways. And, you know, to your point on, on kind of just like, yeah, fostering a, a sort of trusting relationship via Zoom, it's tough because I'm very much an in-person. I love to do the like, yeah, I'm going to go to dinner or drinks with a founder and really get to know them on the personal level. Like, you know, just put aside all the business stuff and let's just get to know each other. And it's just, it's a lot more tiring to do that on Zoom. And, and, it, and it feels like a lot to ask if, you know, the other person doesn't necessarily want to do that. So, you know, there have been kind of interesting ways to do it where, you know, I think when you get to the sort of we're 48 hours from a decision and this is a we're very serious about this i think we'll, we'll even kind of loop in the the socially distanced walk or you know you sit down in that sort of an outdoor bar if, if both sides are mutually comfortable with it um so i think there are nice ways around that but does that happen as often no absolutely not so it's a it's kind of a unique way to have to to work around all this i'm definitely a big fan of the walking meetings Reading Steve Jobs' book, it's something that he was always a big fan of. I think your thinking process while you're walking is just greatly enhances something I, I try and do as well. What do you guys look for in a founding team that you, you've seen over the years that commonly marks a successful investment? Are there any common themes that you look for? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's interesting. I, if I really had to distill it down, you know, I'm going to say it's some combination of... Uh, this person is a dreamer there is they have a they have a, a a large amount of grit and then and i'd say maybe those two things are actually probably the most important and then i'll kind of say secondary domain expertise and and sort of a complementary co-founder skill set um or actually the ability to hire for a complementary skill set and i can kind of get into the nuance of the two of those things but those are probably the secondary set of very important criteria everything else in sort of like, you know, I think other people say like, yeah, do you get credit for, you know, is this, are you a repeat founder or have these founders known each other for a very long time? I think those are always bonus points, but in my mind, they're sort of tertiary to, to everything else I just highlighted. I think especially in this environment, you know, we've gone through obviously a very rapid change, like that grit, the ability to stick things out is, is really important. It's very easy to get sidetracked onto many different things and to, to panic. But if you have those types of characteristics, I think you have a founder that's really invested in staying the course and sticking with their mission. Uh, Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's, that's really important. And actually, uh, you know, an interesting anecdote, um, you know, so, so actually the, I think the first, if I'm not mistaken, the first investment that I made during the, the quarantine was this company called Revenue Cat. And um, you're speaking of kind of interesting founder stories or what you look for in founders. Um, so Jacob and Miguel, the, the, the co-founders, the CEO and CTO of, of Revenue Cat, um, they, so Jacob and had worked at Apple for a period of time and, and, you know, Jacob and Miguel both worked at, at, um, you know, a company called Elevate Labs where they basically had to build consumer apps. And what they noticed is that, you know, their job was not to build consumer subscription payments infrastructure, but they spent a, a, a large portion of time doing that because it was so difficult to navigate things like. How do I attribute marketing spend across, you know, you know, the, the Google play store and the app store. And, you know, how do I figure out like when thing, when Apple makes, you know, kind of fundamental changes to the app store, there's a lot of infrastructure we need to revamp. And you were now dedicating not only our time, but a team of, you know, five to 10 engineers to this. And, you know, there must be something better. 
And when they realized that the answer was there wasn't something better, it actually just created a lot of technical debt and was costly from a headcount perspective. Um, you're like, we should actually just go build this. And I think those are actually some of the best founding stories, in my opinion, where it's like, this is a vehement pain point that in this case, you know, a lot of consumer subscription apps face. Um, two founders that were tasked with solving this problem at a company realized there was no good third-party solution. So they're going to therefore go and build it and sort of be the domain experts on that. Um, and I think it's, it's awesome because to your point on domain expertise is one of the criteria. I mean, this is probably an extreme example of it where anytime there's a, you know, infrastructure switch or change in the app store, or there's some sort of big macro, you know, newsworthy art, like, like Epic versus Apple, you know, Jacob and Miguel are sort of the go-to sources of truth for how to navigate this as a uh you know a consumer subscription app and and what's interesting is consumer subscription app you you may naturally think about as like you know okay well there's some large ones like like calm and 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 other apps like that and there are some like upstarts that are like 20 to 30 person companies um you know i'm a big fan of this, this app i use called reflectly that uh is sort of this like mental journaling app and it's uh you know that actually extends to a lot of enterprise companies that people don't really think about so like you know Peloton or Equinox, for instance, now have their own kind of digital subscription-based app, um, you know, that you would need revenue get to build on, or or like a, a TD Ameritrade trying to use monetized subscriptions via their app to compete with a Robinhood. They're all, you know, you know, it extends all sorts of companies and sizes. So that it's a it's a pretty interesting market to be in right now. And, and I think like you know, tying it back to founders that just truly understand the pain points of their end users um you know very interesting that's definitely a story i'm hearing more and more is a founder might start working on a more consumer facing app have to do a lot of the infrastructure work themselves and actually realize if i'm having this problem there's bound to be a lot of other people a lot of other companies out there that also have that problem and they switch more to a an infrastructure play i was listening to the the podcast by the guy that founded fidel api same story yeah, I think it gives you such a unique perspective um, and that's really valuable. Completely agree. Given as well that index invests across stages, what are the, some of the challenges with that? Some firms decide to be early stage only. They may do follow on investments, but they don't really focus on growth stage. And I think the skill set to do both is quite different. So what are some of the challenges that you faced and what are some of the advantages as well of, of having both those teams? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it, it's a, it's a topic that, you know, we talk about quite often. And I think, you know, I'll start with the, 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 the pros or advantages, because I think it's important in, in how we sort of weigh this being our team construct. So I think for us at the end of the day, it's, it's always going to be founder experience that, that comes first, despite some of the, the pain points internally that we might have to deal with being in this construct. So on the pro side, you know, there's always the kind of this awkward trade-off more often than not between kind of like a you know if i'm a seed series a investor only and um you know i've i've fostered a a a good relationship with a founder and we ultimately pass let's say on the series a but we were on the fence and so you know we we continue that relationship over time between the a and the b and sort of like make intros help them out wherever we can and then ultimately actually go hey the series b they've checked off all the risk boxes that we were sort of concerned about at the A and, you know, we will admit we made a mistake and let's try to do the series B. It's nice to have that same point person um, on the deal because I, you know, I think what we want to do is avoid the awkward, like, Oh, you know, we really like you now, you know, meet my random partner that you haven't met before so they can do a growth investment. And, and that's, I think for us that that's a big part of why it's nice to sort of not separate the team. Um, 
and at the end of the day, the, the founder's experience is what matters. So internally, you know, there are obviously cons to it. So I think uh, the biggest one is probably naturally allocation of time. So when you're when you're sort of serviceable market as an investor is, you know, two million dollar seed checks through you know hundred million dollar growth checks. Naturally, you're going to have to be pretty proactive in where you're choosing to spend your time. And I think on the growth side, sometimes we could, you know, you could be a little bit reactionary of, you know, this is a founder event before, so I'm going to check back in on them for the growth side now. It's maybe a little bit more difficult to meet net new companies at the growth stage when you are sort of time constrained. I think that's a constant battle we're 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 fighting. Um, but but at the same time, it's manageable. And I think you know, I, I keep kind of harping back to to founder experience is kind of the the reason we like to do this. And and I think maybe the secondary piece of, of things that are challenging is like, you know, from a, you mentioned this from a candidate profile perspective, it's not always the easiest thing to, to find either because, you know, the skill set to evaluate a seed or series A investment isn't always the same as a, you know, series D, you know, $50 million growth check. So I think it's all learnable, but I do think you have to be kind of cognizant of team construct. And when you're bringing someone on, you know, is there going to be a learning curve on the growth side and are we okay with that? Or, you know, does this person, you know, did they have operating experience? So when there's no metrics to look at, will they be able to kind of sort of understand the market? And I think, again, things you need to think about if you're going to you know, build this construct, but all all manageable at the end of the day. How do you deal with the inherent biases in seeing a company a second time? Maybe, you, like you said, you passed on the Series A, but the Series B, you kind of want to look at it with fresh eyes, but that's a very hard thing to do. Is there any, anything you guys do to kind of limit the biases you have? Yeah, it's a, it's just, this is actually a very good question because you happen to be talking about this. You, maybe this was a month or two ago. Um, and so we've come with an interesting construct where, to your point, it's it's sometimes difficult to come in with a fresh set of eyes when you, I mean, you, maybe you pass on this company one, not even once, but twice or something like that. Now you're looking at a sort of kind of early stage series C or late stage series B. And, you know, you'd want to say, yes, have they checked off all the things with risks? Maybe, maybe, or maybe not. But from a team construct, the way we sort of get around that is we're going to bring in maybe, you know, if I'm the principal or partner looking at this deal and I'm the one who did pass maybe once or twice, I'm going to loop in ideally two other partners that have not looked at this company um, ever in the past. And maybe not even, you know, maybe for one, at least one of them might not even be their area of expertise, but you're going to get kind of this, these new set of eyes to kind of t- give this fresh view and go, okay, if you can distend yourself from these inherent biases, like this actually seems like a very interesting opportunity right now. Like, and then sort of play devil's advocate to any of like the, the risks that you might still be anchored on. And so we're making a point of having sort of this consortium of, of three or four people team up together to look at sort of what could be a very interesting growth check. Um, to it to avoid exactly what you're describing and just lastly on index obviously sometimes you pass on deals do you guys look at your anti-portfolio and, and track that with a view to improve the process going forwards if you passed on a company that did really well you look at what factors played into that yeah so i mean tracking anti so absolutely is the is the answer and you know i think to your point the learnings are quite important around you know okay maybe we pass on a company three or four times and you know let's say, unfortunately, maybe that's too many times and we're, we're not going to be able to invest in that company anymore. But it's still, there's still a lot of learnings that can be derived from from sort of like, why did we pass at each of these stages? And this ties actually a little bit into your prior question, which is if we were to go back and say, yes, we should have passed on the Series A, those risks were there. And you know we would have made that decision 
10 times out of 10 times. But at the, let's say the Series C, when we looked at it, actually about half of those key risks were sort of mitigated. And, you know, we probably should have turned around and done it then. And we needed more fresh eyes on this. And that was a mistake. I think that's, you know, we, we, we're trying to make a point of almost like, I almost think anti-portfolio case studies are more important than even the, this is a case study of a successful business that we've seen. So, so we do actively track quite often. I'm always surprised when some VCs say that they don't really spend much time looking at it because I think it's so important to learn from the mistakes and maybe that, you know, 10 times out of 10, you wouldn't have invested in the company, but it still could do really well and you have to be okay with that decision, but it's where you miss something or didn't quite do enough research or ha have a fresh set of eyes and that stuff you need to correct for. And I think if you don't really have a backwards looking view, then you can't really do that. Totally, totally. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think, like I said, I do think it's probably more important than even you know, the things doing well in your portfolio. If we take a broad look at the fintech industry, Index has got a lot of different companies in, in its portfolio. I mentioned already TransferWise, Revolut, but also Nova Credit and, and Privacy. Do you guys have a broad fintech thesis? How do you think about the space in general? You know, it's interesting. It's like broad thesis is it's almost like there are so many subsets within Finnick that it's difficult to have a broad thesis. But I, I'd say if I if I tried to kind of develop some form of a blanket statement, you know, again, I kind of anchor back to: is this founder a dreamer with some form of domain expertise, and are they trying to change something that's fundamentally broken for a broad set of whether it's consumers or businesses within fintech? And is this pain? You know. Some of these things are honestly, they sound like simple questions, but if you really kind of took this lens on a lot of fintech companies, I'd say it's it's mixed whether or not like it's as easy to describe as others. So is the pain point just truly, is it viscerally felt? Is it is it somewhat ubiquitous? And is this truly a must have versus a nice to have? And I think especially that latter bucket, the, the nice to have can often sort of must have is, is important is more important to people than than you know than than the nice to have and like people need to kind of like view that lens and the the second piece of this is the is the value prop actually easy to articulate you know like when we were talking about revcat earlier it's uh to me it's a it's a it's a pain point that's felt by anyone developing a consumer app at a small business a large enterprise or in between and you need to be able to collect in-app purchases and subscription payments and also figure out if you're pricing correctly and figure out if your users are leaving you because of price or because of feature your feature set. And if you're spending marketing dollars, you'd like to know if those are worth it. Like very easy kind of value prop to articulate. Uh, and I think in certain cases, it's not as easy to rattle that off in one sentence. And if it's not, I think I, I push friends in investing to really double take if, if this is something that's truly needed. And, you know, I mean, Again, like Revenue Cat, a more recent example, and I'm obviously close, very close to that one, so quite biased towards it. But you know, take Plaid, for instance, or Adyen, or Robinhood, or a lot of the other successful kind of seed series A investments that Index has led. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's there. I mean, Adyen, very similar to Stripe in a lot of ways, started in Europe. But like, you know, enterprises need to collect payments better. And, you know, there is no good solutions out there. And I, you know, like I need to spin up payments quickly and, you know, start with airlines and you kind of develop into other kind of very enterprise mid-market focused businesses. Plaid, how, it takes forever to connect my bank account to some of these new things to use it as a payment method. So therefore I can't use ACH as the payment method because it's too difficult. You know, there's nothing like Plaid. So again, very easy value props to articulate. And they also touch a wide swath of, you know, in Agent's case, businesses, in Plaid's case, consumers and businesses. But, you know, I think that's, that's sort of how I'd say, like, 
we kind of think about the fintech world just make sure all those boxes are checked off because in reality some of these things might be good niche businesses but to, to sort of like come with a multi-billion dollar outcome you need to fit all of those uh you need to check off all the boxes in that criteria i also think it's really good for a founder to have a very concise elevator pitch to be able to articulate what they're doing why it's valuable really well so that almost anyone can understand it i think it's helpful for them as well to really think about what problem they're they're solving for completely completely fintech is a very broad space so within that what kind of trends do you find interesting at the moment i'd say a few are investments that i that i made recently so i think i one with one of which was consumer app subscription payments because you know if you look at app store growth since 2011 the average amount of money that a you know a us consumer spends on consumer subscriptions app, apps per year it's like you know north of 700 dollars at this point that was one so revenue cat was a no-brainer because of a lot of those trends we were sort of following um on the on the side of things we i'd still like to invest in we haven't yet you know a big one for me is actually cross-border payments and, and and more on the b2b side actually so i'm not talking about remittance businesses but but more so, you know, one of the interesting things you saw about Stripe and actually just a lot of non-payments companies, but just general global SaaS marketplaces, um, it's the payments flow to, you know, let's take an example. Like, let's say I'm, I'm uh, you know, like a JustWorks or a Rippling and I need to, you know, I'm obviously sort of like kind of an HR marketplace and I'm based in the US, but I have a, a customer in Canada, but then they are paying contractors in India. That flow between, you know, Canada, US, us to india touches about five to six banks on average and they to get even more complex the like you know to do the canada to us payment versus the us to india payment there are niche providers that specialize in different geography to geography flows or even more complex actually let's say i'm i'm stripe and i want to do an internal treasury transfer from my you know uk or or, or Dublin entity into my US entity, there's actually a special, a, a bank that actually specializes in internal treasury transfers on top of just cross-border payments. So suddenly you turn around and you go like, I'm a JustWorks and I have maybe eight to 10 different cross-border banks that I need to build and develop API, an API connection with. I'm dedicating maybe one to two engineers for each of those relationships. Why can't I just have a third-party tool that sort of services all of these different geographies that I want? And there's some interesting companies out there that are, uh, you know, one approach is to kind of build a, uh, what I'll call like an API wrapper on top of all of these different cross-border banks. So I, as the user, like a JustWorks in this case, can just say, I'm going to plug into, um, you know, this one provider, Routable down in Austin is actually a great example of a, of a company that does that. And, you know, they own the kind of API integrations into all of these other companies on the back end, including the long tail. So they do all the hard work and you kind of take their API. And then the beauty of cross-border is that, because it's unfortunately such an expensive payment method, you know, there's probably, there, there's often 300, 400, even 500 basis points of, of sort of like money that is distributed to these different banks in for every dollar. And, you know, if, if, you know, Routable can sort of like make all this easier, or sorry, Route Fusion makes all this easier, then what's interesting is, you know, you can actually make the overall cost cheaper but still have a lot of sort of what I'll call like pie to share of that, of the, uh, the cross-border fees. So I think cross-border in general has a lot of interesting dynamics there and, and still underserved, even though, you know, something like a currency cloud is a large business or Rapid's a large business. Again, they just don't fully address all the pain points in that market. Um, accounts payable, accounts receivable is another interesting kind of thesis actually. So, I mean, 
you can get into the world of like ACH payments and how difficult it is. You know, it's, it's crazy. Anyone that's worked with, uh, you know, an accounts payable team at basically any tech firm, it's, it's still shocking to see that you're sending, you know, PDF invoices via email, uh, trying to, you know, you, then you take some junior accounting analyst who has to enter all of that into a spreadsheet in order to get that into your ERP system. And there's no rich metadata attached to the actual ACH transfer that you're asking your treasurer to then send out to your supplier. And, with all of that, you know, it's like, yes, maybe in a bubble doing that once you can coordinate amongst all those parties. But when you're paying out, you know, hundreds of vendors, if not thousands as a, you know, large tech business, there's a lot of money that's lost in errant wires, you know, attribution to what am I spending on and working capital is difficult. So there's a lot of kind of, you can do on the APA AR side to revamp that. Um, so those are a couple of themes amongst, uh, it's sort of top of mind right now on the FinTech side. Um, Maybe the latter of which actually FP&A tools is actually quite in, quite interesting right now. I think there's a lot of interesting sort of new tools coming out in that space. And I think it's just a matter of developing this new wave of tools for the finance suite. It's funny you mentioned the um, accounts payable, accounts receivable, because I'm in a startup sales class. And one class we were going over this process of like getting a purchase order. And we were all like, surely there's a system where you don't have to just send a PDF, <laughs> have someone type it in. And the guy was like, nope, that's pretty much how it's done. And maybe if you're a very yeah. large company, you have your own proprietary system that you force people to use, but that's not most companies. And I was just shocked. And I think he told us a story of like the amount of fraud that goes on. Someone was, was just sending fake invoices and sometimes du duplicate invoices yeah. because you just receive them, you pay it, and there's not that much transparency and, and tracing. And I was amazed at how archaic that process still was. Yeah, don't I mean don't quote me on the stat itself, but there I mean to your, you mentioned the kind of you know uh, fraud and 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 sort of like phishing attacks that happen in this, and so like take a, the, there's some stat out there, but I, what I do know is like fa take Facebook and Google, and I think in 2019 both of those companies lost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of just pure margin that was due to phishing attacks on the long tail of operating expenses because to your point. When you're paying, I mean, you're on the extreme end when you're those two companies, but you're paying out thousands of suppliers at that point. And it's unrealistic, unless you can attach the like, rich metadata to the actual ACH or wire transfer I'm sending out to pay the said supplier, it is is nearly impossible to take the, what I'll call like the 30% long tail of OPEX and try to attribute that to a, a fraudulent vendor or a real vendor. And you kind of just write it off as a loss into the ether, which is shocking in, in a lot of ways. But it's uh you know you have to you have to assume there's something better out there that to address that and then j just on the fpna side so i used to work in asset management and did some work with the fpna team and the amount of stuff that they would just do on a very repeated process on excel that was just not scalable w was just really interesting and i found though that sometimes selling into that team is probably going to be quite a challenge because who in that team's really going to be out there looking for new solutions. There's always a ton of, obviously the IT team within the company has other different priorities and trying to find like good software for the FPNA team. I think sometimes you might lack the internal champion that you need to really kind of get that sales process kicked off. It's interesting you say that because I, I, I agree. I think it's, and you have to be very pointed about the personas as you alluded to. And, and you, I think if you, whoever unlocks this kind of next phase here is going to have, you know, the sales motion and go to market side will be key because you have some companies that what I'll call have the Excel champion. So like I am the, 
you know, and as you mentioned, it's like, it's probably either the CFO, if it's an earlier stage business, maybe the VP of finance at a kind of mid stage one, then the head of FP&A, if it's a late stage growth company, uh, or even pre IPO. And, you know, depending on who that persona is, like, there's, there's one type that is the, I'm an Excel forever person, and I will use Excel until it legitimately breaks processes. Um, so that's one type of person you have to try to figure out how to develop that person into a champion and probably the hardest upfront hurdle. But if you can get that person to, you know, convert from Excel champion to your champion, then I think you've done your job very well and, and, and you're good to go from there. Then there's the, uh, I have used legacy tools for quite some time, so I won't leave them because it's, uh, I'm, I'm used to it persona. And that's the, you know, I've, maybe I've used the, the Oracle version of that, or I've, you know, new age, you know, you're, you're, you're maybe the more anaplanar adapted powered users. And you're just like, I've, well, I've used adaptive it two or three jobs prior. So I just like to keep using that now. And that's, that's maybe a more middle ground sales cycle. And then there's the, the, like the tech forward new adopters where, you know, I'm a seed series A business and I want just these out of the box metrics and I can you know, grow with your user base. That's probably the easiest sell. But I think then the key is like, can you, when a new VP of finance or CFO eventually comes in at like a series B or series C, can you make sure that that person is still bought into the tool if it's already in existence? So I think long-winded answer, it is a little bit more difficult to figure out who that champion might be and how to get that person to become your champion. But I do, I am still convinced that, you know, as long as you have the right kind of go-to-market muscle and, uh, you know, content creators on the marketing side that you can probably figure that out eventually. And I want to get into payments, obviously, given your, you know, your deep background there. Visa, MasterCard, these two behemoths uh what's it going to take to really disrupt them and change their business square and cash app i find a very interesting proposition you know square's very deep connections into merchants and now it's developing cash app on the consumer side is there a possibility of some kind of closed loop network there where if you're a cash app user paying a, a merchant with a square point of sale terminal they can cut out all the middlemen and that could be a rival i wonder what your thoughts are on the space I've thought about this for a long time, even predating my time at Index, to your point, given the Stripe angle, it's how do you solve the pain points of ACH to make it a, a more optimal solution? Because the rails exist, right? And it's just the matter of ACH has always been an issue because of timing and and fraud risk. And whoever can figure out, to your point, like whether it's an existing, like a, like a Square Cash up leveraging existing network to try to build this solution where you know, you're bypassing essentially interchange and scheme fees and someone else in the network, whether that's the merchant retains it or the consumer gets it, something like that works. But I think there's actually prime opportunity if you can solve uh, the, the, the kind of working capital constraint, timing issues and fraud issues with ACH. So I'm actually a big believer of that. And that's probably one of my favorite theses. And it's interesting in Europe and the UK specifically, there are more of these account to account payment solutions coming out given the regulations and I know Visa and MasterCard are probably looking at that. They could, could potentially be disrupted. And I'm sure they're investing in companies that are going to help facilitate, you know, if I'm a merchant and, and you're a consumer, I'll, rather than pay with my Visa card, I'll just pay direct from my account into your account. And it solves that working capital issue. Coming to the US, I mean, I don't see there being an easy solution, but I would think the banks have a very large incentive to, to do this properly and cut out the, the fees that they're losing to Visa and MasterCard and they own the customer bank accounts and they probably own the acquiring accounts of the merchant as well. Like There's got to be a, an incentive there for them and 
yeah, I don't know really why it hasn't happened, to be honest. Yeah, no, I agree. So we actually have some, we have pretty close relationships to the the, the CIOs at a lot of the, the banks you're alluding to, like kind of JP Morgan's or Barclays of the world. And and th- it is actually pretty high on the roadmap. And, and it's just a matter of having the right resources and, and likely having to part, you know, uh, partner with a third party that's outside of their firm to do this, but they are thinking about it. And I can tell you that. And, uh, you know, stay tuned because I think there will be some interesting announcements coming from us probably in the next six to 12 months uh, related to this exact topic. To kind of close out, you mentioned earlier you use Reflectly. What are the other productivity tools or tips you use to manage the the many demands on your time? I'm always interested to to kind of see how different people optimize for life balance. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably one of the, the weirdest dichotomies of an investor where I I go, I, you know, I have some areas where I'm very tech forward as a consumer and others where I'm probably extremely clunky and antiquated, which is very ironic for a lot of reasons. But I, I think, you know, obviously Notion very close to home. I'm a huge fan uh, of, of Notion, both for my personal life and my work life. So uh, that is probably productivity tool number one or two for me. Um, and and reflectly, yes, I love that from a kind of it forcing me to be reflect, you know, reflect in journal and, and kind of think about you know, my week or day. And it's a, I'm actually a huge fan of, of that app. And I think outside of that, it's more, you know, it's kind of, it's actually probably more workout related, if anything, but I'm a big fan of some of the, the kind of like new digital, I held on digital, huge fan of that too. And I think for me, it's actually getting more in the routine of, especially now in quarantine, making sure I kind of either get a run in or some form of a workout in every morning in the, in the same window to, to create this, this routine. And that, that kind of helps me kind of focus for the first half of the day is sort of a slew of meetings. Um, but, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, those are probably the key ones. I've tried out a lot of other things, um, but I'd say of the, like, as a daily active user, those are probably the ones that come to mind. I used to be a pretty decent user of Notion, and then I saw a lot of the stuff about Rome. And yeah. I, I mean, I've only just started using it recently, and I haven't quite fit everything that I need into it, but. It's really interesting, I think, from a from a school perspective as well, where I can take notes and link things across. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've seen is the ability to link stuff that comes up in class to like an actual broader topic that I'm interested in and to see things in a bit of a better way. I think it's a really interesting tool. What also do you regularly read or listen to? Are you a podcast guy or is there any kind of newsletters that you mm. regularly read or thought leaders that you follow? Yeah, so... I, a lot of those things. So let me try to still it down. So I'll start with, you know, let's put the, I'll start with more of me as a just fan completely. So I'm a huge, you know, I'm a huge Wheel of Time Star Wars fan. So on the personal side, anything related to those two, those two universes, I will, I will read at any point. Amazon actually bought the rights, finally enough, to Wheel of Time, I think a year and a half, two years ago. And there's a show that who knows at this point when it comes out, but it will be coming out soon. And quote me now on this, that is the next Game of Thrones for anyone that hasn't heard of this. Um, on the on the more kind of educational, I'd say VC side of the world. Um, so newsletter wise, huge fan of Ian Carr and uh, Julie Verhey at the at, at FinTech today. Um, she's pretty close to that uh, that team there, and I think extremely highly of that of that newsletter. And I think honestly, there's just in the early innings of, of like how influential they will be in the space. Um, this one's going to be kind of more a shout out more as a, as a friend here, but Harry Stebbings, I, his podcast is phenomenal. And uh, he's actually an investor in revenue cap with us and came into us with this latest round and, you know, could not think more highly of, of sort of what he's done in the broader VC ecosystem. And then on the, on the more educational side, n- neither of these two are probably going to be novel by any means, but I'm a huge planet money fan. And I have been for a long time. I, I, I've tried a lot of different sort of 
finance related podcast and plan money is still the one that I think distills down very complex topics into very interesting kind of layman's terms and why, you know, real life anecdotes, which I love. Um, I think the, the, one of the more recent episodes around kind of the like Hertz bankruptcy and, and people making trades on Robinhood uh, when the stock should have essentially been valued at zero is super interesting. And I think describes that, you know, what's the power of that podcast in a nutshell. And then how I built this for obvious reasons uh, is, is another great one. If, if folks don't listen to it, they definitely should. So to round out, I'm always on the lookout for new guests on the podcast. Do you have any entrepreneurs you know, in, in the fintech space, any entrepreneurs or other investors and thought leaders that you think would be a uh, good guest to have on? Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I hope, hope he doesn't mind that I am volunteering him for this, but, you know, I think, I think an interesting person to, to bring on is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Point App. So it's a new age debit card that optimizes kind of rewards and benefits and makes them a little more customizable. And, and it's interesting because kind of given the, the macro trends around folks really just the aversion to credit cards, especially at kind of the Gen Z millennial level. And it's, uh, I think Patrick uh, Mrazowski from Point is a phenomenal kind of influencer and, and you know, extremely knowledgeable in the early stage fintech ecosystem. So if uh, he, he would actually be a pretty interesting person to have on the podcast. We've definitely seen an influx of these types of cards where you, you're getting credit card-like rewards through a debit card. I think it's growing because, as you mentioned, the usage of credit cards by millennials and younger folks is definitely on the downward trend. But, you know, people love the rewards you get with credit cards, you know, or the air miles. And right, right. There's a high hurdle rate or whatever you want to call it with like, you know, it's like my my travel or restaurant points, right? On a, on a Chase Sapphire or something like that. Yeah. And I think obviously like Cash App's doing great things with its boost rewards that it has. I'm sure Ven- Venmo's going to have some type of rewards on its debt as well. I'll give him a reach out and then if he wants to come on the podcast. Thank you so much awesome. for your time. It's been so interesting talking to you about your background and you know your stories of why fintech as well. And that's actually a really good perspective to have. Yeah, thank you for having me, Michael. This is great. I'm excited uh, to be one of the early, the early folks on your podcast and it's, uh, it, was, it was a great time. All right, thanks very much.